Each of us has a unique career story to tell. For some, these fly high like rocket launches. For others, they're more like the game of shoots and ladders with advances and setbacks along the way. Either way, we learn countless lessons from these experiences. And that's what we put into the spotlight here at Career Sessions Career Lessons. Join discussions featuring a variety of guests sharing their stories of ups and downs, as well as the secrets of their success and what drives them to continue moving forward. We break down the tools and resources that will help you establish your dream career and realize your professional goals. Here's your host, J.R. Lowry. Welcome to Career Sessions, Career Lessons, J.R. Lowry. Today, I have the pleasure of welcoming my longtime friend, Bill Ward, to the show. Bill is currently president and CEO of Cavco Industries, a producer of manufactured homes with revenues of about $1.1 billion. Prior to that, Bill had a really different CEO role, leading the Great Lakes Brewing Company in Cleveland. If you're not familiar with Great Lakes, they have a very strong craft brew following and are known in particular for their Christmas ale, which pretty much flies off the shelves each year. Bill has spent the bulk of his career in a variety of roles in the construction and natural resources industries. However, he started his career in manufacturing with Procter & Gamble. He earned his undergraduate degree in chemical engineering from Penn State and also earned an MBA from Harvard Business School. He and his wife live in Phoenix. They are the parents of two daughters and a son. Bill, welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah, I appreciate you doing the show. So start with a question I ask almost everybody. What was your very firm and how old were you then? The first job of any real meaning, I guess, I worked night shift in an electronics factory. And I sat there all night. They would bring buckets of dip switches. And I bet a lot of people won't even know what that is. But these small parts, I put them on a track. And they went down to a woman that sat probably 10 feet away from me. And she'd knock them out if they were bad quality. We couldn't even hear each other because there's a loud factory. We sat out there all night doing that. So pretty interesting entry into the workforce. Yeah, sounds riveting pulling dip switches out of a bucket and a night shift as well. How did you decide chemical engineering when you went to the state? Probably tell you a little bit about me and this theme will probably come up a few times. I didn't start out thinking I wanted to be a chemical engineering, but I took chemical engineering because I thought it gave me some options that I was thinking about. And my primary interest going into college was I thought I'd be an orthopedic surgeon. But rather than committing to what people would typically do, I figured out this triangulation of some other things I might end up liking, and chemical engineering seemed to be the thing that would leave all those options open. What happened to the orthopedic surgeon idea? I think as I went through college and some of the stuff I did outside of the schoolwork, kind of leadership positions and organizational stuff, I started really kind of enjoying being involved more in organizations and management and leadership. And I don't remember ever deciding, boom, I'm not interested. It just kind of faded away. Yeah, it changed my views later. And the chemical engineering degree served me well in what I thought originally. I don't think I was all that wise, but it played out kind of the way I thought it would. It gave me some good options. Yeah, I mean, that's one thing engineering is certainly very good for. An engineer myself by background, I haven't really used it in an incredible detail since probably 1989 or maybe in the early 90s. But it's given me a foundation that I've used throughout my career. Sure. Yeah, thought processes and discipline and how you look at things. And I'm very similar. I I really, by the time I got out of school, I wasn't all that interested in being a technical engineer. I knew I didn't want to do that. Create some good opportunities. How did you decide to go to Procter & Gamble after graduation? What else were you considering as alternatives? Yeah, I had done two summers at Procter & Gamble as an intern. I was on the four and a half year program. (laughs) 
<laughs> so I had the summer after my junior and my technical senior year, spent those times doing jobs at the Procter & Gamble factory, a very large complex in Pennsylvania. Uh, yeah. The other things I was targeting, I had some opportunities in pharmaceuticals and also energy um, yeah. oil and gas. And those would have been much more like using my technical chemical engineering background. Yeah. So what was it about PNG that was there relative to the pharma energy space? Yeah, it was the idea. Like I knew from my internships that I was going to go in and be managing people, become a manufacturing manager, which was really interesting to me. Building kind of loosely using the engineering background, there was more about people management and process management. So I had figured that out through the interview process and through those internships that it was more about managing and leading and less about trying to become a technical engineer. First work experiences out of school are almost always form and experience. What did you take away from your time at PNG that's guided you in the years since then? Yeah, it really cemented that very idea. I mean, I loved it. I kind of am someone who likes the puzzle of situations, and I really enjoy process engineering, meaning looking at what's going wrong or looking what you can do better and seeing the whole system. And I ate that up, and I really enjoyed, as I said, the people management. And I'd actually go back to that night shift job I was talking about. I mean, I grew up, I developed a lot of respect. It sounds easy to say. I developed a lot of respect for people that are kind of the manufacturing employees and what they're doing and the opportunity right out of school to manage them. It was challenging. It wasn't always easy. Some of them were difficult, but I just kind of loved that challenge in that environment. Yeah. And I'm sure you were put in the position where you're managing people, some of whom are a lot older than you are. Yeah, absolutely. More than twice my age, for sure. Which is always a unique experience in its own way. But yeah, you got a lot more to learn from them than they've got to learn from you. They've seen people like you come through, right? (laughs) Yeah. They'll still be there. You'll be gone, right? That's I think, the way some of them think yeah, about it. Yeah, you got to figure out how to influence things because of that very fact. They can hold their breath longer than they figure you'll be there. So if you want to get something done, you got to be pretty effective. Yeah, manufacturing plants have always fascinated me. I haven't really done a whole lot in the manufacturing space, but enough to appreciate like you that it's a hard job in its own way. And the people who are doing it, what they want, I think, first and foremost, is just having respect for whoever is in their management chain. And I think a lot of times that doesn't happen. Yeah, it seems like it shouldn't be difficult. And yet I think you're right. I mean, it can be unappreciated and, and you do have to respect what they're doing. I mean, there's the you know people raising their families and going to work every oh, day. Yeah. It's not easy work. And yeah, I've always really had an affinity for that environment and those people. Absolutely. You opted to go to business school after a few years. This is a decision a lot of young professionals consider. What drove that decision for you? Yeah, interestingly, I didn't know a lot of people that had ever done it in my background. My father was a social worker. My mother was a registered nurse. Didn't really come from a business background. And even at Procter & Gamble, we were learning how to be world-class manufacturing managers. But that was kind of the sphere of that world within Procter & Gamble. Even though I was loving what I was, I started just thinking I, you know, my engineering degree was pretty regimented, not a lot of broadening as far as like I had never taken an accounting course before I went to business school. And yeah. I just kind of started to become really aware that I didn't really know how businesses worked. And so it was a pretty short step to say, well, that's an interest. Now is the time. And certainly business school would be a way to, to broaden out that understanding. So looking back, do you consider it a good investment of time and money? It's certainly not cheap. Yeah, no, it set the course of everything after that. And I felt even when we were there, I felt that because I didn't have really hardly any of the business exposure before, 
felt like my dollars were at least going to good cause. I was soaking it all up. There wasn't a yeah. course there that I had any background in. So even looking at some of my peers who had come from consulting or finance backgrounds, like, well, I'm getting more out of this than they are because I'm starting from ground zero. Coming out of the military, a lot of people at the base, I was stationed at Hanscom Air Force Base before I went to business school. And there was steady trickle of people from Hanscom into some of the top business schools. And I got a lot out of it. It was yeah. a transitionally important for me to kind of move into the private sector in a way that gave me the foundation, like you say, to keep up with people who'd been in the consulting or the investment banking backgrounds and just came into business school like infinitely more prepared. Yeah, it was incredibly challenging, but it was a good environment though, where you could really probably a lot more supportive than many people think it is. The class stuck together and I think everyone yeah. wanted each other to succeed. So I was just soaking it up. It obviously changed the course of my career for sure. So then you went to Warehouser. What do you feel like looking back on that? Obviously, a different place than being in a manufacturing plant at P&G or the night shift job that you'd had prior to that. What did you take away incrementally from your time at Warehouser that built on what you had done prior to that? I'm going to probably say this a couple of times. My wife and I felt like we had a plan. Coming out yeah. of grad school, we were going to go to Philadelphia area. We're both from Pennsylvania. That's where friends and close enough to family and I got the job offers I went after for, you know, I got several good offers to do that. And that was the plan. And Warehouser invited me to interview. And I think she was <laughs> kind of looking at me a little bit concerned. Then <laughs> why even go to the interview? And I'm like, don't worry about it. This will lead to nothing. But I really hit it off with the guy who was the hiring manager. And what they offered was they had this group. It was a big company. My memory's right. Probably when I was there, $10 billion market cap. Still, even though the job was at headquarters, it was still a manufacturing company. So I got yeah. that itch scratched. But they had this group that they brought people like me in out of MBA programs, usually with more of a technical background. And we got to work on the decisions that ultimately the senior management team and the board of directors were going to have to make. So if it was an acquisition or a major capital project and narrowly focused, it was financial analysis, right? It was doing the economics, but really what it was, was figuring out how to frame decisions, thinking about how to make those decisions and being part of project teams where you had business units that wanted to do something and you had to kind of get in there with them. And they knew that you're ultimately an advisor to the senior management team. That you could be an asset to that team if you did it well. It kind of continued my education because learned what I did in my graduate degree but now is in this group where I really got to think about how that company worked. And for me, to be honest, I don't think I can overstate it. I think about decisions today, day in and day out, the way I learned to think about them in that first job. So was it an internal consulting construct or a rotational program, or was it just sort of structured experiences around your day job? You were there to do a specific job. Like I said, you were kind of the advisor and the analyst for the senior leaders. But it was kind of constructed that you would spend about, say, two to three years in that group. Yeah. And then there's a long history. People would shoot out all over the company. And mm -hmm. my thought was, well, I'll go out to some manufacturing plant after I get this experience. And that was the way it was designed. Yeah. I ended up running the group and then ended up being asked to do a completely different job that I would have never expected. They put me in charge of uh, finance and accounting for one of their larger business units. Never saw myself as that kind of person. Actually, remember asking them, why would you want me to do that? But it was that kind of an incubator for general management talent in the company. Yeah. How was that transition? 
manufacturing into accounting. I learned that I had to be able to manage people that knew the content of what they were doing a hell of a lot more than I would ever know it. <laughs> you know, I, I am not an accountant. I don't think in accounting terms, but I had to learn to understand and support people. That was their world. So I was on the leadership team of the business unit, which I was eating up, but that was good development for me to manage groups that understood the work a lot more than I did. You got your chartered financial analyst certification. Again, yeah. you know, something that a lot of young professionals consider mainly those financial services. So what was it that led you to get your CFA certification? Yeah, I started that when I was in that initial group. It was pretty clear about it. The thought process at that time was kind of build, okay, I got my MBA. Now I'm learning this way to think about this company and how you make decisions. The thing I still didn't feel like I had any background or experience or education was how the capital markets work and how investors think. So probably naively, I started what turns out to be a very difficult certification program. But I remember thinking at this point, I was working with senior managers and the board and I was starting to think to myself, man, if I ever got to the position where I was on the executive team of a public company, it would be a great benefit to know how the outside investing world looks at that company. So yeah. not the reason a lot of people get a CFA and a designation and also actually had to convince them because they pretty job experience is one of the criteria for getting in the program. I had to convince them of some rationale why some guy in a manufacturing company should take the program at all. But it, yeah. I think it served me well. You know, now I'm running a public company and I'm dealing with investors every day and it gives me a perspective on all that. A lot of people come up without ever really getting the hands-on finance experience, even just sort of the financials of a business case and things like that. And I really feel like it's one of those skills that you just have to pick up over time. You know, yeah. if you want to progress through an organization, it just, it benefits you. In the same way that people leadership benefits you, I think being able to understand financials and balance sheet and cash flow statements and P&L statements, it, it's definitely helpful. When I talked earlier about that first role, a big part of our job was figuring out how to frame the decision. Financial anal analysis you could do, but yeah. if you could figure out how to take complexity and get to the essence of what this decision is really about, then the analysis takes shape a lot easier and you're actually helping the decision maker make it. And so that's the part that I think continues to play a big role yeah. in how I think about business. At some point along the way, then you went to the home building company, Centex in Dallas. You were out in Washington. Your kids were young then. How did uh, you and your wife, Angela, decide to go down to Dallas? What fueled that decision? Simply put, I got recruited away. And our family was young enough. Our oldest daughter was kind of just going into first grade, as I remember. And so that wasn't too much of an issue. Every step we've taken, I think we've taken with the thought that this is it and we're going to stay. Yeah. Yeah. And yet things come along. So yeah, yeah, I got recruited away by a guy who preceded me from Warehouser to that company. And I'm kind of of two minds about it. On one hand, it led to a lot of things that got me where I am today. And on the other hand, I spent a period of time really thinking I made a huge mistake, frankly. Why so? I think it, at Warehouser, the fit was so good. Port was so good. It's early in my career. And even though people talk about it, I think I thought, well, it'll be like this anywhere I choose to go. The fit will always be good. The yeah. support will always be there. And it's not a criticism of a different place and culture, but it's how you fit it within it. And pretty quickly, I felt like, God, I'm not fitting as well at Syntex. Yeah. Well, you know, I had left some good stuff behind. You know, I had a good yeah. thing going. Some nights staring at the ceiling after that decision. 
And you talked about how you hit it off with the manager and that's what led you to go out to Weyerhaeuser. Managers matter, right? And cultural fit really matters. Having worked in different companies over the course of my life and spent time at McKinsey working with a lot of different companies, there's a lot of very different cultures out there. I think as you get you get older, you get a better sense of what's really going to work for you. But it takes time sometimes to figure it out and to appreciate. You had the experience of you didn't really necessarily know what you were going to be missing until you were missing it, you know, right. which I think happens yeah. a lot. Yeah, you learn a lot from that. And I think probably early in our career, we heard people later in their careers saying how important fit was and intellectually yeah. go, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. But now here we are, <laughs> the ones talking about it. It's real. It is real. So you guys did a spin out of Eagle Materials and you decided to go with the spin out. It was also there in Dallas. You didn't have to pick up and move. But I mean, you talked about Centex not being a great fit for you. Were there other factors that drove you to go with the spin out? Yeah. When I went to Centex, I was kind of head of corporate development. So I was working on strategy at the corporate level, but also within this diversified company's business units. The Eagle Material spinout was a result of undoing that diversification strategy. So yeah, partly I was trying to find, <laughs> how do you say it appropriately? Partly I was unhappy at Centex and was looking for a different avenue. Did yeah. get along well with that business group. And here was a chance I mean, talk about, again, putting some things that you've thought about and learned in your past to work. Here was a chance with a smaller entity, the one that was suddenly going to become public, to be right in the middle of that process. Yeah. Doing roadshows with investors, but also developing strategy for a newly public company. And yeah. that was exciting. So that's what we worked out. Were there sleepless nights about that move or was that a good move for you? That was a really good move for a while. I felt really good about it. Did some really interesting things. It was, again, a smaller environment, so a chance to kind of try things and experiment and make some stuff happen, which was great. It got to the point where, interesting way, I'm not sure I'd have to think about how to put my finger on, it kind of just felt like it ran its course for me. And it just felt more like it's time to do something else as much as trying to get away from that. Yeah. So then you went on to what's now Cleveland Cliffs, mining company headquartered in Cleveland. So another right. job move, not family move. Looking back, I guess, what do you take away from your Cleveland Cliffs experience? I know it was a little rocky at times for you. My wife and I decided we needed a change. We wanted to make a change. The interesting thing about that transition is we decided that about a year before it happened. Yeah. And so I worked actually very deliberately while still doing my job and working hard there. I worked very deliberately to find something. And we kind of had the attitude that you got a good job, not really unhappy. So let's take the time to do this. I got recruited to Cleveland Cliffs, so kind of found through a search. The pressure we had on us at that point in our master planning, (laughs) that always seems to change, was that our oldest daughter, when we finally made that move, was going into eighth grade. We had a very strong desire value, I guess, that we didn't want our kids to be moving around in high school. So there was a bit of a clock ticking. You know, If we were going to leave Dallas, we were going to leave that job, we had to get somewhere. But yeah. the stars aligned and, and actually the fit at Cleveland Cliffs was really good again. It felt like this is a good place. And for many years, it was as part of the executive team doing a lot of interesting things. If you want to fast forward to the end of the story, like you're alluding right. to, eventually yeah. the market turned on us and we had a hostile investor get involved. And it happened, seemed like in retrospect, it happened very quickly. It took some time, but they took control of the board. My feeling about being there, I, part of me wanted to stay and write the ship. And soon after they put new leadership in place, wasn't the place to be anymore for me. 
Yeah. And it's unfortunate when those things happen, but they do happen. I know you took a bit of time off, although you were also pursuing a business opportunity that you had been actually working on while you were at Cleveland Cliffs that you knew they weren't interested in. Maybe talk about that briefly, if you would. Go back a couple of years from the hostile situation. One of the opportunities I got there, I was kind of utility infielder on the leadership team. I did everything from corporate strategy to some business oversight. But one of the opportunities I got about four years before I ultimately left was we had a potential mining project up in the far north of Ontario. I was asked or got the opportunity to really start from scratch and build a business unit. And there was a lot of complexity and interesting aspects that experience. One of them was the First Nation communities, the the natives in Canada are called First Nations. There were 10 very remote. This development was extremely far north. There were 10 isolated and very remote communities that we needed to work with to, de- to have any chance of developing this project. Fascinating work. I mean, I'm embarrassed to say growing up in this continent, I didn't even know there were places like that. And it was just yeah. one of the experiences of a lifetime. Anyway, to get to your point, as I was leaving Cleveland Cliffs, I knew that the new CEO had no interest in the project. And I kind of left thinking, well, I'll just go find my next thing. But soon after I left, <laughs> I think within a week, some of those First Nations I had worked with called me and said, hey, we heard you're, you're out of cliffs. Can you help us? You know, So yeah. here are people I've been in some ways negotiating with. I don't like to think about it across the table. But now yeah. that I was out, they came to me and said, will you work with us? And yeah. so along with one of my good friends and colleagues in that whole effort, we put an entity together, developed a really interesting partnership approach with the First Nations, raised money and made a bid to buy the project from Cleveland Cliffs. Yeah. And unfortunately, we weren't successful. <laughs> so it was a beautiful plan, a beautiful idea. Would have been awesome, but it didn't work out. That was that little piece in the resume that kind of off doing my own thing. It all kind of flowed yeah. out of that experience at Cliffs. Yeah, but I'm sure you learned something from that. It's a very different construct to be doing something on your own, having to line up financing yeah. you know, more as an individual as opposed to having a corporate name behind you. Yeah, I'd never had to raise money before, and it was not easy. I was shooting every direction I could find. <laughs> yeah. Well, then when you get to sort of a very different turn, you are a home brewer, I know, from way back in the day, and you get a job running a hugely popular craft brewing company in Great Lakes, become somewhat of a rock star in the craft brewing industry. On paper, certainly a dream opportunity. Was it a dream opportunity for you? It absolutely was. Again, an experience of a lifetime partly because of my own passion around that, but partly because it was just different. And I learned a lot from the folks there. When the effort to try to buy that project from Cleveland Cliffs failed, then I had to just kind of sit back. And I think the key in those situations is to relax, have the confidence you're going to find something interesting to do next. And as soon as I kind of relaxed and started to even think about, hey, let's just relax for a while, I was tired. As soon as you get to that point, it's amazing how things kind of come to you. And I will contact someone who knew the brothers who started that company about 30 years earlier. He felt like they needed a CEO. They had never had one. I think they thought that too. And he talked to me and introduced us. It was so exciting for me because yeah. like you said, Great Lakes is a big deal in that area and in the industry. I guess fueled by probably a few beers, me and Conway <laughs> decided we'd give it a go and see if I could come in as our yeah. first CEO. A lot of people daydream about turning a hobby into what they do for work. 
did running Great Lakes and dealing with all of the things that come with running a 30 to $40 million company with 150, 200 people, did it increase or dampen your enthusiasm for brewing itself? I loved it. <laughs> I went in with my eyes open. You know, I mean, what people tell someone to be careful about is you don't have the resources you have in a big public company. You're going to do a lot of stuff. You're going to roll your sleeves up. And I was ready to do that. I mean, I needed that kind of a change. I love being close to the production aspect of brewing because that's the part that was my hobby. I spent a lot of time, really enjoyed being around the brewers and talking to them. And every once in a while, I hoped that they would be surprised that I knew a little bit. The other thing that that experience really brought home to me was Pat and Dan Conway, who founded that company in the 80s, they are incredibly values oriented. Like I had never been in a situation where you do what you do as a company, you're making what you make, all that, but the values were so strong. And that was throughout, that was intertwined with how that organization operated. So I really loved it. It was tough. If you ask about the brewing industry, it started by people who had it as a hobby and then they decided yeah. to give it a go. And True. the tough part that I learned was that that industry is not about the product as much anymore. It's more about marketing, in my opinion. Yeah. And it's very easy for new entrants to come in. So it's not a very healthy industry in my perspective, but the environment was fantastic. It's amazing how that whole industry has just exploded over the last 10 to 15 years. I used to give speeches, and one of my stats was that a new during those years, a new brewery was being started every eight and a half hours in this country. <laughs> yeah, I believe that. And probably <laughs> uh, five years later, a new brewery was failing every nine hours. So along the way, you were running Great Lakes, but you also got involved in the board at Cavco, company that you're currently with. How did you come to be on their board? try to be shorter because I know I'm talking a lot of these answers, but it's fun to think back on it. Um, that yeah. went all the way back to Centex. Cavco was one of the portfolio companies that we actually spun out right before Eagle Materials spun out. So I had done a lot of work with the CEO that was running it for Centex and that went with the newly formed company. And they were a very small manufacturer here in the Southwest when I kind of parted ways because they spun off. I was now in Cleveland five years later, and he had an opening on the board and asked me to join. So I really feel very fortunate because I didn't just get like recruited onto a random board. It was that that gave me the opportunity. And yeah. so I was on the board for 2008 for over 10 years before I actually stepped into this job, which was never on the horizon. Obviously, you've been in some big companies. You've been the CEO of a small to mid-sized company at, at Great Lakes. What was it like to be a board member and how did it differ from being in an operational role? Another great learning and development opportunity for me because I had been in and around board rooms back to my warehouser days and all the business yeah. after that. You're looking at it from the management side. And what I was very conscious of, partly because I was kind of mentored in a sense by that CEO and the people on the board as I came in. Yeah. I was very conscious of the difference between being an independent director and being management. I became very aware that our job's different as an independent director. It's kind of like I was talking about having the investor perspective when you're running a company, having the independent director's role and that understanding when you're on management or vice versa is really important to that dynamic. And it's one that I think doesn't always work out the way it should because uh, people aren't always as aware of the difference in the role. So you think about a board job when you're on an executive team of some other public company, you think of those people just kind of, well, they head out there four times a year, 
right. kind of a break or something. I right. viewed it as an important part of my career for those 10 yeah. years. And it was developmental as anything else I was doing. It seems like a lot of people retire and then they go on to do board service. And at that point, they're out of the active operational world. And being able to do both in parallel has to be a big advantage because you get to see a different lens on a different kind of situation at the same time. In your case, you're running a company and it's unfortunate that more, I think part of it is because companies don't like their executives to be on other companies' boards. And to me, that's unfortunate because they have to learn from those experiences in a way that would help them to be able to come back and bring that to their day job. Yeah, it's really valuable in what I do today, obviously. I mean, I'm working closely with the board and something we talk about, you know, the role differences. And I agree with you. So wait to have that experience until you're not in management, kind of this opportunity. When they asked you to step into the CEO role, which was back in 2019, right? Was it hard for you to leave Great Lakes, the stream job and the craft brewery and your kids were, I think your youngest was either late in high school or approaching college at that point, right? But moved to Phoenix from Cleveland, another move, leaving this great gig you had as CEO of Great Lakes. Was it a hard decision? It was both. The decision, I don't remember necessarily being hard because when this opportunity suddenly was on the radar, I wanted to do this. But the hard part was, was another example where Angela and I and our family had it all worked out. We had no intention of ever leaving Great Lakes. We love Cleveland, well-established. So it's kind of an interesting dynamic. Those decisions can be interesting because you can know what you're going to do and not have a lot of trouble making that decision, but it's still hard to leave what you're leaving. And that's exactly how I felt about it. I really had planned to stay at Great Lakes for however many years I worked going forward, but I've had good plans and they've been wrong many times in the past. Yes. You can have a plan, but you shouldn't necessarily be wedded to it, right? You've got to be open to those opportunities. I was so excited about coming here. I don't think I would have done it for a company that I didn't know. So I had a unique situation where I knew what I was going to. You learn more as you are on the management side, boards have a certain perspective, but I had real confidence in the company. I was very excited about what this company does. And I was very excited about what I thought I could do here. I wasn't hand-wringing about the decision. And once again, it's happened many times. My wife and family were just immediately 100% ready to do it. You go from running a company that's 30, 40 million, as I mentioned earlier, to a company that's got revenues now of over a billion, which is a huge step up. You had the advantage of having been on their board, but was it a tough challenge for you to make such a big jump into a company that had so much more revenue and so many more employees? Yeah, I mean, this job's challenging, but I really don't think about it in scale. I had always been in companies, many of which were larger than this one. And I'd always been kind of in where the big decisions were being made. So it felt very natural from that perspective. And when I was at Great Lakes, if we were making a $100,000 decision, I don't ever really remember thinking about how many zeros were on that. It's important to that business context. And it seemed exactly the same to me as being in a larger context, making a decision might have a few more zeros on it. To me, I know some people think in those terms of the importance of the scale of situation. To me, you're in a situation, you're making an important decision to that situation. It feels kind of the same to me, large or small. You've obviously not had the experience of starting a company from scratch or being in a a really small business. One of my earlier podcast guests who has started a few companies talked about 150 people being a threshold for him. At that point, he felt like it's big enough that he... A, didn't need to be involved in everything and B, couldn't be involved in everything. And 
it sort of helped him hone different management skills that he had to up until that point. So I think that's why companies looking for people in large roles, they want people who've been in large roles because it's evidence that you can kind of manage a group of that size. Yeah. And you do have to be very conscious about who ought to make a given decision. In this role, I try to think a lot because I think it's so important. I came out of the smaller kind of entity, obviously, but you have to think about, like, I don't make the same decisions now in this larger company that I, someone else has to make certain decisions here. That's where I think I could get off track is if I had thought that I needed to roll up my sleeves and make the same level of decisions that I did at Great Lakes. Was there a point along the way, obviously, I mean, we've talked about sort of, you know, you had a plan, but it didn't always go according to plan. But was there a point at which you kind of, you finally felt like, I really know myself and I know what I want to do and I know what's right for me. Did you have that moment? Yeah. I mean, different learnings, right? I mean, it was very early. We already talked about it. It was very early that I knew I really wanted to lead business organizations. I think some of the experience I've had, I started to get more in touch with the impact you can have, not to sound like cliche, but the impact you can have in business on people's lives, whether that's social impact or even the impact on employees. And I remember at Eagle Materials, we built a factory that I felt was very instrumental in getting off the ground. It's not a thing for you to bring up here, but I remember we started it up around the holidays. And every holiday since, I think about the families that got jobs from that opportunity. And that means a lot to me. So there was a point there with the First Nations and other things where you get more focused on that intersection of business and making a difference. I hope that doesn't sound fluffy to people, but that gets really exciting at a point in time in your career. And so I remember when that happened. And that's what starts to drive you a little bit more. How much do you feel like values have driven your career choices over the years? I think more consciously, a lot more and more. When you ask things like how easy or difficult was the decision to come here, for example, it was in large part because I knew what this company was doing and could do for the affordable housing issues in our country. And I think there are a lot of things that were it not for this, this, and this, I probably wouldn't have come to CAFCO, but that was a big factor that value of the opportunity to have an impact. Yeah. Um, the other thing is I'm very, as I mentioned here a minute ago, an example, I'm very gratified, I think, in, and energized by the idea of the jobs within the company. Yeah. You know, yeah. here at EVCO, I talk to people about, yeah, we make homes. We do some other things that everyone thinks about, but we make jobs and we give people the opportunity to be successful. I think that's a product of our work. So yeah. that value has become really important over time. You've talked a lot about family and the way that they've helped you in making choices along the way. Who else would you sort of call out by name or maybe by description generally has helped you along the way in your career? If I thought about it, there's been probably a lot, obviously. You don't get here without that kind yeah. of support. There was one gentleman that comes to mind that was at Warehouse. He was actually the CFO. The thing that stuck out to me was, you know, here I was like just learning. I came out of my business degree and I'm trying to figure out how companies work and everything, but I got a chance to work with him on things. And I always felt like he gave me more credibility than I deserved, right? It was this feeling of like, geez, why are you trusting me so much? It kind of had an impact on me of the idea that you don't wait until someone's like ready or has already done it. If there's someone you believe in, you give them a bigger opportunity and they don't disappoint you. And he and a couple others at Warehouser, I think, were doing that for me. And that's always had a big impact, both in the opportunities they gave me, but also that awareness of that philosophy, I guess. Now, 
CEO of a billion dollar plus company, how do you work to develop those around you who are more junior in the organization and looking for that same kind of support that you had going back to your warehouser days? I try to do what I just talked about. Um, sitting here talking with you about it, I kind of challenge myself if I do it or not. <laughs> Giving yeah. people the opportunity that maybe on paper, someone would say they need one or two more steps first. And sometimes that takes a form. I mean, one thing that is occurring here at Tafco, sometimes it takes the form of taking someone from outside the industry and putting them in a job that a lot of yeah. people would say, well, you can't do that. I believe in that person. I'm going to do it. They're going to develop fast. And it's going to bring something unique. Big part of it is how you give people the opportunity. And then, of course, I think of myself as a bad time manager. Part of that, I at least I'd like to think, is because I try to be very available to people that I'm trying to support. And I hope that they feel that way, too. You know, and asking people, you know, you've been here a few months. Are you happy? Is a good yeah. entryway to figuring out what they need. And they're even on their development. So that being in touch and that awareness, I think yeah. I, I try to do. I don't know if I do it all that well. Well, I mean, asking that question is an important question. I think particularly right now, just especially with the pandemic raging on and people struggling mentally, emotionally with the challenges that it's presented for them. What are the handful of career lessons that you sort of look back on and say, here's the billboard shortlist? I think I should take the time to figure out how to write the book, I guess. But if I had to go to the off the top of my head, I mean... Career-wise, there's obviously a theme in how I've done it. It doesn't mean it's what everyone wants. It doesn't mean it's what everyone would find useful. But we laughed about it a minute ago. You always think you have a plan. You always go into something thinking this is my destination, but you always stay very open because there's a lot of opportunities to broaden yourself and to do like interesting things. So that staying open, I think, would be one thing. For me and my career path and the kind of jobs that I've aspired to and been able to do, I really think that experience of really wrestling a complex decision to the ground, getting good at simplifying the complex is everything in business in my mind. Something you have to work at. You have to be deliberate about that. And part of it comes from don't just answer the question you're asked, figure out the right questions and then take yourself all the way to, okay, now what would I do if I was that decision maker, even when you're not the decision maker? And I think there's another one I hope I don't ramble on too much. I see so many times that people, when they disagree with someone else, the other person's just wrong. And I think working really hard, every time you have that feeling of they're an idiot, those are smart people. They have a different perspective. And if you work to figure out why they, even if you still disagree with it, why they're making the decision they make, you're going to be more effective. You're going to have a broader perspective. You're going to be more valuable in your work. So that goes for whether it's a negotiation, something you're dealing with employees, decision-making. I just think it is the minute someone thinks, what a fool. Yeah, That's the time to call time out and go, they're not stupid. So I got to understand the way they're thinking. You know, yeah. If you do that, you're going to develop. Yeah. It's never good to just sort of shut people out mentally and just sort of discard how they're thinking about things. Because at that point, they can't be effective. And you've lost the ability to understand their perspective, to your point. Yeah. It makes the world more complex for you, right? Because oh, yeah. you have to accept that things are complicated and people have a different perspective. But man, it's a difference maker. Yeah. Any final thoughts to share? I don't know. You got some great questions. I've enjoyed it. I hope someone finds some value. <laughs> I told you when when we decided or when you asked me to consider doing this, I said, geez, I don't know if there's any value in the story because it's been kind of a random walk. It's sure been nice to talk to you and I appreciate the good questions. Yeah, look, I mean, everybody has their own unique path. We've all done things 
that have gone well. We've all done things that haven't gone well. I feel like people really benefit from hearing other stories. And that was the whole purpose of starting this podcast for me. Apart from just the desire to kind of reconnect with people that I've known over the years and kind of hear their stories in their own words. So anyway, I appreciate it. So that wraps up this episode of Career Sessions. Bill, thank you for joining. I appreciate it, sharing your career story and your learnings and have a great rest of the day. All right. Thanks, JR. Thank you for listening to Career Sessions, Career Lessons. We hope the nuggets of wisdom shared today help guide your path to the successful career of your dreams. This podcast series is part of Pathwise.io, which is here to help you live the career you want. We provide a comprehensive mix of career and professional development events, insights, tools, and exercises backed by a group of leading coaches and other career management experts. If you aspire to something more or just something different in your career, join us at Pathwise.io. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. See you again on the next episode.